Hear now readings from 1 Kings upon the death of King David and at the beginning of King Solomon's reign. Then David slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. The time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. Only he sacrificed and offered incense at the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the principal high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I should give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, although I am only a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a great people, so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding of mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil, for who can govern this your great people? It pleased Lord, the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, or for the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you, and no one like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor all your life. No other king shall compare to you. If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I know it will please some of you to know that I went to my first Nationals game uh, this week. It may upset others of you. I don't know how that works again. I'll learn that as I go. But I was thinking in church that we really don't make use of walk-up music. Um, that would be a nice opportunity, I think, for the ministers to have walk-up music as they come up to the podium each time they did something during the service. It's just, I'm just throwing that idea out there. I don't know. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, in this time we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together bring glory and honor to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I don't know what to make of Solomon. Uh, a few weeks ago, a colleague of mine on my podcast asked whether I thought that the Bible portrayed Solomon as a complex character or a more one-dimensional. And I said, I don't know. 
Well, I suppose if I can't give a yes or no, that would necessarily mean he's a complex character. But, but he's one that I struggle with, and he is one that I struggle to read. Uh, growing up, Solomon was always taught as the good guy who just gets off the rails there at the end of his life. He's manipulated by his numerous wives, foreign wives that he'd married. But when I read the story of the scriptures for myself, I found that the, that story is not quite so simple. You see, unlike his father David, Solomon comes to the throne through tremendous violence. Solomon secures his kingship by murdering David's former general. He murders a man of political influence who had opposed his father. And he even murders his half-brother that thought he might become king at some point. And then right after this, Solomon marries the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, on the one hand, you, you might say, wow, look, look how God has blessed Israel. When else in the history of all of the ancient Near East would Israel have a superior international presence to Egypt, which is what marrying the daughter of Pharaoh would mean. On the other hand, you might say, exactly who thinks it's a good idea to be Pharaoh's son-in-law? I mean, has no one read the book of Exodus at this point? This is not a good plan. But maybe we could dismiss these things because they come before this passage that we read today. They come before Solomon asked God for a discerning heart and mind to, to lead God's people. But then after God grants him wisdom, he builds temples to foreign gods. He forces labor on his people. He enacts an oppressive tax structure that favors his own tribe but oppresses others. These are odd things from a man who has prayed for a discerning heart to lead your people. But today, in this passage, Solomon seems to get it. <laughs> Solomon even pleases God with his request for wisdom. We also heard today from Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is one of the two Psalms of Solomon in the book of Psalms. Some scholars wonder if it might have been a coronation psalm that might have been recited whenever the king got on the throne. It might have even been recited annually at a service that, that remembers and renews kingship. Give me a discerning mind to judge your people. May the king defend the cause of the poor. May the king deliver the needy. May the king crush the oppressors. May the king have compassion on the weak and needy. These are the words the king would recite. These might have even been the words the king composed. And yet, this is a king who used his discerning mind to exploit God's people. He ignored the cause of the poor. He oppressed the needy. And in fact, he was the oppressor. How could someone who seems to know the theory so well get the practice so wrong? Now, in fairness, I probably shouldn't pick too much on Solomon all by himself here. Yes, historically, when I have taught survey of the Old Testament, Solomon is the poster child for what a bad king looks like from my perspective, but Solomon has good company. You see, in the 400-year history of Judah and the 200-year history of Israel, there were exactly three kings who are called good without reservation. And a few of them are good except most of them are not good. <laughs> And even the three good kings, David and Hezekiah and Josiah, only Josiah doesn't have a story where he failed God at some point. It's really only one good, holy good king in that story. In other words, most everyone got it wrong. All of these kings worship Yahweh. 
all of these kings would literally have considered themselves Yahweh's anointed, and most all of them got it wrong. I wonder if perhaps Solomon wasn't specific enough when uh, he was asking for wisdom. What he asked for was a discerning heart to judge your people. What he probably should have asked for was a discerning heart to judge your people your way. Because I think one of the mistakes Solomon fell into was he believed that he and God saw things the same way, or that they had the same goals, or that they measured success the same way. You know, it, it must be the will of the Lord. It, it makes so much sense to me. <laughs> of course, on the surface, building a temple to the God of Moab looks like a bad thing, but It'll placate those grumpy Moabite people, and, and they won't rebel, and, and Israel will get a nice payment annually from their vassal state, and isn't that a good thing? Of course, taking twice as long to build a house for Pharaoh's daughter as you did to build a house for Yahweh looks bad, but with Egypt placated, Israel's international place is much stronger, and isn't that a good thing? These are goals from which the typical perspective of any ancient Near Eastern king would make complete sense. They do seem to show a discerning mind. <laughs> but when God was warning Israel about choosing a king in Deuteronomy 17, one of the things that God wanted the king to do was read the Torah every day. That would help remind the king God's priorities aren't necessarily human priorities. Sometimes the wisdom of God looks like foolishness. And a daily reading of the Torah would remind the king that God is God and the king is not. Daily reading of the Torah would remind the king that he isn't above the community and he isn't above God's teaching. It would remind the king exactly where his focus and energy should go. Use your power and your position to help the helpless. Advocate for those who don't have. Give hope to those with no hope. Daily reading of the Torah would be the perfect thing to give the king focus. I think God realized that the trappings of kingship and wealth can be very distracting. And the king was going to need regular reminding of exactly who it is God cares for. It reminds me of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain in the Gospel of Luke uh, and his mind-blowing, countercultural, and very confusing statement that Davidson reminded us of last week. In Luke, Jesus says explicitly, you know, blessed are the poor. When Jesus uttered those words, everyone in that crowd would have said, what did he just say? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Everyone knew the rich were rich because they were blessed. And Jesus says, no, the poor, they get it. The poor, they know what it is to walk by faith. The poor know what it is to trust. The poor, they are the blessed ones. Daily reading of the Torah was supposed to remind the king that blessed are the poor. God regards the oppressed. God regards the stranger and the hopeless. And when you read Psalms like 72, you have to believe Solomon's got it. He understands that. Psalm 72 embodies so many of the goals of the Torah, clearly laying out those responsibilities the king has. How can someone who has the theory so right get the practice so wrong? I wonder if Solomon has compartmentalized his life. You know, it's so easy to do that this is the religious part of life, this is the work part of life, the school part of life. It seems Solomon can pray prayers he's supposed to. Solomon can recite the theory. And then he can go on and just do what makes sense to him. The truth is everything we do Every moment we live makes a theological statement. Every choice that we make every day reveals exactly what we think about God, what we think about others, what we think about us. You can't just 
pray a great prayer and offer sacrifices at the high place of Gibeon, write a great song remembering the Torah, and then go build a temple to the people of Moab and use forced labor. Just can't do that. Let me update that illustration a little bit. Last year, I was teaching about the Torah and explaining how God's priorities don't change, Old Testament to New Testament. And I shared that, you know, Jesus made that explicit when he was talking about the greatest commandment. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And Jesus said that that commandment was exactly the same as love your neighbor as yourself. And one of my students said, well, not exactly the same. And I said, sure they are. And she said, no. And I said, yes. I'm a skilled debater, as you can see. And she said, but... And I said, look, here's, let's look at the Bible. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with all you have, and the second is exactly the same, love your neighbor as yourself. He also said, if you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. He didn't say it's analogous to having done it unto me, or it's like having done it unto me, or it, your heart will be strangely warmed as if you had done it unto me. No, Jesus makes clear that the way we treat neighbor is the way we treat God. And when I finished, we had a few seconds of silence between us, and she looked at me and she said, huh. So I realized <laughs> in that moment, she reached a revelation that Solomon never got to. So what's the challenge for us today? Well, I think the challenge is to not be like Solomon. Don't marry 700 wives or build temple to foreign gods. That's for those of you who want a sermon with the least application possible. Um, but, but don't be like Solomon. We can't let God's words be on our lips, but live our lives by what seems right to us. This position of kingship was not given to Solomon for him to do what seemed right to him. His position was given to him to do what seemed right to God. To defend the cause of the poor, to give deliverance to the needy, to have compassion on the weak. Throughout the Bible, power and position and wealth are evaluated not by the return on investment, but by how well those things are used to show love of God, which is, of course, the same thing as love of neighbor. God wanted the king to read the Torah every day to remind the king of that. But wow, that's a serious time commitment. I mean, tradition numbers the laws of the Old Testament as 613. That's a lot of time to clear from the schedule for your daily briefing. I mean, can't you see the aides in ancient Israel? You've got defense at 8, economic advisors at 8.30, and Torah reading from 9 o'clock till sometime after lunch, I guess. I mean, if the kings don't want to do that, I think I'd understand. Can't you imagine a king listening to those laws and about halfway through Leviticus saying, can we get this on a one-page memo of some sort in some way? And Jesus comes along and says, no problem, I got you. The whole Torah summed up like this. Love God with everything you are. And this is exactly the same thing in loving your neighbor as yourself. And in case you were wondering who your neighbor was, your neighbor includes that person you hate the most in the whole world. So we will see just how much you love God by just how much you love the person that you hate the most in the whole world. A few years ago, the, the what would Jesus do craze hit evangelical Christianity. People wanted Christians to ask the question, what would Jesus do? And I would absolutely never mock that because I've said many times I really only have one sermon, right? Be like Jesus. That's it. That's the only sermon I've got. But what I found with that exercise is that too many people ask the question, what would Jesus do? And then finish with, yeah, but that's Jesus. I'm not Jesus, so I'll do this. I wonder how that exercise would go 
if we daily read the Torah, not, not the 613 bits of instruction that ancient Israel had, but the Torah that Jesus gave Christians, what would your life look like if you began each day saying, my love of God is shown by my love of neighbor, and my neighbor includes the person I hate the most in the world. My love of God is shown in my love of neighbor, and my neighbor includes the person I hate the most in the world. I think if Solomon would have recited that daily, it would have been harder to use forced labor. It would have been harder to kill family. Wouldn't it have been great to see what a, a discerning heart could have accomplished with that as the mission statement? My love of God is shown in my love of neighbor, and my neighbor includes the person I hate the most in the world. When we were going through the search process together, the committee was kind enough to include me on their prayer list, and they asked what I'd want to pray for as I think about my ministry here at McLean. And of course, I went with Micah 6.8, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, but for some crazy reason, with all of my frustration about Solomon, I went to 1 Kings 3.9. So when I saw that text come up in the lectionary, I just had to preach on it, because I thought, it really is my desire to have a discerning heart to lead. That's a really good prayer. My prayer is that I work out the practice better, and I did add that to my email list there. My prayer is that, that we are able to creatively and compassionately discern ways to show God's love in all that we do, which of course is shown by the love we show for neighbor. So the mission field that we have been called to individually and collectively as a church can hear a message of hope in a world of hopelessness. Our love of God is shown by love of neighbor, and our neighbor includes the person we hate the most in the world. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, grant us a discerning heart to lead in this world in your way. Help us to crucify our desires. Help us to crucify our will. Help us, O oh God, to resurrect you in our lives. Help us to have your Torah in our minds every day, guiding our every step, loving you with all that we have by loving neighbor itself. Help us remember that our love for you is shown in the way we love others. And for those with no hope in this place, may they know the hope that you have given us. May we be your hands and feet to show them love and purpose that comes in your salvation. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen.